Welcome to the 20th episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. Today we're going to be looking at UFC 259. We're going to look at the highs and the lows. There were a lot of highs and some lows, so we're going to touch on all of those. And then afterwards, we're going to take a look at some other news. There wasn't too much other news this week, but we are going to look at that because there's a couple things that are very important that we should touch on. So to start off, we're obviously going to start the main event of Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blahovic. So this was a very good performance by Jan here. He did a lot of things that were veteran, very good, smart. He fought a very smart fight here against Izzy. And I think the biggest storyline here is the two takedowns that he got in the fourth round and the fifth round to secure those rounds and get out of there with a victory. Um, he used, I was so impressed with the timing on his takedowns. Jan Blahovic doesn't have elite takedown offense, but you can replace elite takedown offense with great timing and he timed those shots perfectly and if you can time a shot that perfectly he gets Izzy when he's in a position of striking not grappling um, he's a little not off balance I don't want to say off balance Izzy doesn't get off balance but he's in a tough position to where he cannot defend that takedown so Jan had some perfect um, entries to takedowns and then off those takedowns he was able to control position he that was his main focus in the fourth and fifth round when he was on the ground. He didn't do too much ground and pound. He got a little bit off in the last 10, 15 seconds of the fifth round. But he had about six minutes of ground control, maybe a little five to six minutes in between uh, the fourth and fifth round. And he mainly just made sure he maintained top position. And he ensured that he would get out of there with the victory if he won, won uh, rounds four and five. So that was very impressive. And he did other good things on the feet as well. It's not like he just was able to win this by um, going and getting those takedowns. He was in this fight on the feet as well. Um, the first three rounds were mainly taking place on the feet. Uh, most people had those two to one with Izzy winning two of those first three. Some people had it one to two with Ian winning two of those first three. Um, that's really, that doesn't really make a big difference at this point. But even all those rounds, those first three rounds were very close rounds. And I was so impressed by Jan Blachowicz's defense. He's going up against one of the best strikers in the world. And he never, Izzy caught him clean a couple times, but he never really did anything. He never, Izzy never really landed a strike that you'd be like, oh, that could put out Jan. He landed one big one in there in one of those first three rounds that kind of looked like it had a little bit of an effect but nothing too overwhelming. Jan did a very good job of making sure he didn't get kicked in the head. Um, as much as I would have loved to see a head kick KO, uh, a head kick KO during UFC 259 for the head kick KO podcast, that's not how it went, but that's all right. Um, and we're, we were in a position here where Izzy was throwing a lot of those head kicks and Jan always had high block up. He never got caught clean with one of those. So much respect for that because most guys aren't able to do that. Izzy's so crafty with those kicks. You don't know where they're going. Sometimes they go body. Sometimes they go legs. Sometimes they go head. And he really mixes it up so well. So for Jan to not really get caught clean and with a head kick at all is so impressive. And he never got caught solid trading in the pocket. Um, we Robert Whitaker got caught in the pocket. Is or Paulo Costa got caught in the pocket. So for Jan to do that and not get caught in the pocket, I think that's the biggest storyline from the striking. Uh, Jan obviously did great things offensively, striking as well, but his defensive striking um, was outstanding. So I think that is the major thing that I took away from the stand-up. And also, Israel Hadasanya has one of the most underrated chins in MMA. There were a couple times where Jan connected cleanly um, there was a picture that I saw on Twitter of uh, a shot that landed right he, right on the pretty much the mouth of uh, Izzy, and that shot did not put him down. So there were a lot of, uh, Jan landed some strong offense, and those shots didn't put Izzy down as much as, we've, as much as we've heard about Polish power. Those shots did not put Izzy down. So for, for, Blaho, or for Izzy here, he was eight, he got caught a couple times, nothing too major. He had a great chin on him to stay up, but he did a good job as well in this fight. He just it just wasn't enough. Um, 
Jan got out of there with the experience and the edge on the grappling side, and Jan had a great game plan. There wasn't really much Izzy could do to turn the tides here. He did everything that he usually does. He kicked that lead leg. Um, Jan did a good job of checking some of those, but Izzy still landed on that lead leg many times. Um, there was some redness on that lead leg of Jan, and I don't know why, but it seemed like those leg kicks didn't affect Jan as much as they did someone like Paulo Costa. So that is something to think about. Uh, at this point, I, there isn't really a clear answer of why uh, those leg kicks didn't accumulate and cause more damage. But, I mean, that's really a story for another day. That's more of a deep technical analysis of why they didn't uh, have the same effect. Um, that might be even something a doctor would have to look at to see if it was landing directly on that nerve in the leg there. So, um, but you know, Izzy didn't look bad in this fight and I still think he's the best 185 pounder on the planet, but I think coming into this fight, there was, there was a lot of talk about the weight, rightfully so, but I think after watching this fight, we learned that Izzy bit off a little bit more than he could chew here and he had, he did have a chance to win this fight in a very competitive fight. But I think the size really came into factor in those fourth and fifth rounds. The first three, the size didn't look like they played much of an effect. But when you get Jan Blachowicz on top of you, and um, especially in the later rounds, so you're, you're more tired. I don't think Izzy was that tired. I don't think cardio played a big factor in this fight for either guy. I think Jan was starting to slow down. I think he was getting a little tired. But, I mean, at the end of a five-round fight, you're going to be a little tired. If you're just a little tired at the end of a fifth-round fight, then or at the end of the fifth round, I mean, there isn't really much you can complain about in terms of your cardio. So, Izzy here um, got taken down. I think that size had a, played a big factor in, in why he was not able to get up in those fourth and fifth rounds. Um, and Jan had very good positioning. He was taking position over ground-and-pound, position over submission, um, so I think that, uh, I think Jan put the perfect fight here to win and so much respect to Jan and, uh, this kind of legitimizes Jan as a champion. I think everyone recognized Jan as a champion, but when you're in a position where you're the first champion in a division since John Jones has, John Jones has left anytime that you are, um, the champion in division, when you didn't beat the previous champion, I think there's always going to be question marks. And whether whether those question marks are deserved or not deserved, and I don't think they were in this case by Jan after he after his performance against Dominic Reyes, I don't think anyone had the right to question him as a champion. But some people were. So beating Izzy at 205 to retain his uh, light heavyweight title, I think that proves that he is the best light heavyweight on the planet by a mile. Um, well, I shouldn't say by a mile. There's other great guys in that division, but at, right now it does look like he's the best light heavyweight on the planet. So. I'm glad to see, I, I was happy with the way this fight turned out. Um, it would have been interesting to see Izzy to win, to see Izzy win, to see what he would do. Does he get the John Jones fight? Does he go to heavyweight? Um, but we're not going to know that, but um, Izzy's still the best 185 pounder on the planet by a decent margin. So it's going to be interesting to see what's the, what the future stores for him at 185. And before we talk about what's next for each of these guys, um, we need to talk about the judging. So the judging for the whole card, there were some questionable scorecards that were read. Um, one of the judges scored the fight for Casey Kenny in the Casey Kenny versus Dominic Cruz fight, and that seemed unreasonable to me. If you look at Verdict MMA, this is the main place I cite anytime we're talking about MMA judging is Verdict MMA, and I think that's the best place to cite for uh, global scorecards, global opinion, and on that, um, Dominic Cruz won two of those rounds by uh, with a score of 9.9 .9 on Verdict MMA. So um, I don't see how any judge scored two rounds for Casey Kenny. Um, that's another discussion for another day. Right now we're going to talk about Izzy versus Dion and that scorecard, those scorecards. So in these scorecards, you had two guys score this fight 49-45, the other score 49-46. I don't want to focus on the 49-46 because I think four rounds is reasonable to give four rounds to Jan. I saw some very respected people who know the sport of MMA very well that gave, um, that gave Jan four, four rounds in that fight. Um, 
I, but uh, I do think, and I think Verdict MMA Global Scorecard backed the fact that Izzy won two rounds and Jan won three, um, with Izzy winning one and three and Jan winning two, four, and five. Now, the big, the big debate here, I, I can, um, I can settle with judges giving Jan four rounds. I'm not too upset about that. But the two judges who gave a 10-8 round were a little ridiculous. I mean, I'm assuming the 10-8s came from the fourth, either the fourth or the fifth round. Um, I'm assuming they were coming off the fifth round, actually. Um, the fifth round was a more dominant round for Jan. He got into better positions. He advanced position better. He got to full mount with 15 seconds left and landed some ground and pound. He didn't really do that in the fourth round. Um, obviously, I'm saying he still deserved to win the fourth round, but the fifth round, um, he was more active. So I'm assuming on the ground, he's more active on the ground. So I'm assuming the fifth round is the round that was given a 10-8, which is a little ridiculous because he had about three minutes, maybe two and a half minutes of ground control, Jan did. So, and before that, it's not like I can see this being a 10-8 if the Two, two and a half minutes prior to it going to the ground was domination by Jan on the feet, but it wasn't. I think Izzy was winning the fifth round up until the point of Jan's takedown, and then Jan won the round with all that ground control. Um, but even you could make the case Jan was winning that fifth round up until that point. That's not too much of a discussion. But the fact that there was a discussion of who won the first half of that round, obviously Jan won the second half with all the ground and con- ground control, but if you're thinking, um, if you're three minutes into a round and you're going, oh, uh, I'm not really sure who's winning this round. It's a really close round. I don't think you can score it for a 10-8. 10-8 should be domination. I do think we should see 10-8s more often in MMA. But I think this is a bad time to use a 10-8 round in a round that just because someone clearly won a round, that doesn't mean it should be a 10-8 round. Um, uh, when I think of a 10-8 round, I think 10-8 is something closer to uh, what we saw Islam and Drew Dober. I think that'd be a better example of a 10-8 round in the round where um, Islam had like four and a half minutes of ground control and almost finished the fight with an armbar. I think those that'd be a more deserving round for a 10-8. Those scorecards did not come out, so it's really, you can't really tell. Oh, if someone scored that at 10-8. But I think those types of rounds are more deserving. Obviously, I could go on a long list of rounds that should have been 10-8 rounds. But I think the fifth round of Izzy versus Jan isn't really deserving of a 10-8 round. Yes, we should be using the 10-8s. And I think that's something that we need to utilize. I shouldn't say more because now we're seeing it in the wrong positions. We have to find the right balance of when we're using 10-8 rounds. And this was not the proper time to use a 10-8 round. And um, just thankfully, it didn't result in a bad decision here. The right guy still got his hand raised. But I think this opens a question of judges need to know when to use a 10-8 and when not to use a 10-8. So hopefully that's something that we can see um, in the future. Now, the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to Izzy Adesanya versus Jan Blachowicz is John Jones. Obviously, John Jones and Israel Adesanya has they have a history with each other now the reason i want to talk about john jones is this is because john jones got his twitter fingers out and decided he wanted to tweet up a storm about izzy um losing this fight now here's the thing about john jones that frustrates me about john jones is anytime someone does something good israel or john jones is the last person to put out a tweet but if someone has a bad fight or someone loses, even this fight, Izzy lost a competitive fight. So in situations like this, John Jones is the first one to whip out his phone and put out some disrespectful tweets. Now, Izzy moved, Izzy's been in the sport for three years, got the middleweight title, and he moved up to light heavyweight. And John has been in the UFC for ages, and he's been teasing a move to heavyweight for like eight years now. So I, I don't understand why John Jones feels the need to constantly criticize Israel Adesanya. And if John, if John was smart here, he, he, what he doesn't realize is that Israel calling out John and wanting to fight John is, is, a, is a respect to John, first of all. Where it originated was Izzy wanted to fight John because he recognized how good he was. And then John takes it as disrespectful that Izzy wants to fight him because uh, he sees John as a great fighter. 
And then this whole disrespect thing comes into play and we go down this path. But I don't want to get too much into the beef here of John Jones versus Israel Adesanya because I really do think that um, that fight's done. I don't think we ever see that fight now. I think Izzy had to win this fight for to see John versus Izzy, um, especially in the way Izzy lost. People are citing size as a reason he lost, especially in the fourth and fifth round. I just talked about how the size played a difference in the grappling exchanges. And Jan, or John is a far better grappler than Jan Blachowicz. And he would also have those size advantages. So I think that would be a bad, um, I think that would be bad. I think that would be a bad outcome for Izzy. I think on the feet, it'd be a little different. Um, I think the reach would cause John problems because he's using, used to having a reach advantage and he still would have a reach advantage. But um, I think John would be able to dominate, dominate that fight on the ground from what we saw. But, you know, that's kind of besides the point here. My point here is basically every time someone someone slips up or someone doesn't do something great, John Jones is the first one to put out a tweet criticizing them. And when someone does something good, John Jones is the last person you'll see tweeting at them saying, oh, you did this, uh, congratulations. And through all the bad things John has done, you'd think he'd, you know, maybe maybe realize, hey, maybe I shouldn't put out a tweet anytime someone loses or doesn't have a great performance. It happened last week, too, with Surreal Gun versus um, Jarzinho Rosenstrike. We saw John Jones put out a tweet and said, Daddy's home. Um, John, you haven't been in the light heavyweight div- you haven't been in the heavyweight division your whole career. I don't know what you're talking about when you say Daddy's home. Doesn't make much sense, besides the point. Then he criticizes them for not moving forward and looking for a finish. John Jones hasn't finished a fight in a decent period of time. Um, he didn't figure, he didn't finish Dominic Reyes. He didn't finish Tiago Santos, who had one knee that was jello on the inside, and the other knee didn't have an AC, had a partially torn ACL. So you got one knee that's jello and one knee that has a partially torn ACL, and you didn't fin- finish Tiago Santos. Um, come on, John. And then you criticize Surreal Gan and Jorginho for not moving forward enough and having enough pressure. This is what I mean when I say John is the first one to tweet when something goes wrong and the last one to tweet when something goes well. So we'll see We'll see what he has to say. Um, we'll see what he has to say when Stipe and Ngannou are fighting for that heavyweight title. Um, maybe maybe, uh, maybe he can prove me wrong and maybe, uh, maybe change up his Twitter, his Twitter um, strategies. So we'll see how that goes. And if John... If John does uh, take a different route on his uh, on his Twitter page during that fight, I'll sit here and tell you that that I was wrong and um, that John John was being a good dude after that fight. So there's only one way to one way to find that out. We'll have to wait and see. But moving on, we're going to talk about Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. Now this fight was a weird fight. There isn't too much to talk about, but I think we can have a discussion here about. Um, about the greatness of Amanda Nunes and how that affected Megan Anderson. I think that anytime you're going up against someone of Amanda's caliber, um, Megan just didn't really look like herself. I don't know why. I, I don't really want to speculate why. It could be any anytime you're standing across Amanda Nunes, I can't imagine that um, your body is filling with confidence. And I think the number one thing you have to have to beat someone of Amanda's caliber is that confidence and that belief that you can do it. And I think in some cases you get in there and you look at Amanda Nunes and you go, oh God, I'm in the cage with Amanda Nunes. This is not going to go well. And I think that's just a mindset thing that you can't really, you can't really tell how someone's going to adapt or what mindset they're going to have until they're in the octagon like that, in that, in that situation. We saw Dominic Reyes, not to bring John Jones back into this, but Dominic Reyes went in there with the attitude that he would beat John Jones, and he, many people think he did beat John Jones. I don't want to get into a discussion about how, um, how, how those rounds were scored and if Dom should have won, but he almost won, right? He didn't get beat in two minutes. So I think this opens up a big discussion of the first thing you have to have when facing Amanda is the mindset to win, and I think if you don't have that mindset, you're not going to win. So, um, that's something that you can't tell, like I said, until we, uh, until we get in there. So, um, I, I wasn't a big fan of um, Megan's game plan. I hate to do this, but I would have liked to see her utilize, 
uh, she didn't really, she just didn't really do much, to be honest. Um, and when, when Amanda connected, when Amanda connected, um, Megan felt her power. And you could tell that, you could see that, and that resulted in Megan. Megan was on in a bad position after that first first punch landed. So I would have liked to see her use use her range a little bit more, throw some kicks out there to try and manage that distance. Um, maybe a jab, you know, counter strike. I, I she just didn't really do much, and I I don't really like to beat down on Megan here because she did fight the greatest female fighter of all time. And one of the best female fighters, or one of the best fighters of all time, regardless of gender. So, like I said, I hate to um, bash on Megan here after she just got in a cage with Amanda Nunes. But I would have liked to see a different game plan on the feet a little bit. But um, overall, it's nothing that you can be too upset about um, because you were in there with the, you were in there with Amanda Nunes. So Amanda looked great in there, like she always does. And that submission that she had on Megan was incredible. Um, I don't think we've seen that in MMA, and uh, it's been a long time if we have seen it. Um, uh, the, it looked like an inverted triangle almost. I mean, I'm not too great. I've never done jiu-jitsu, um, so I'm not too great on, on these types of more intricate submissions. I have the basic knowledge on jiu-jitsu, but this looked like an inverted, inverted um, triangle choke. And she utilized that arm in the triangle choke to be an arm bar. Um, so maybe that's what it was. But it, it, with the with the smallest bit of jujitsu, you can tell that she was choking her out and going to break her arm at the same time. That was a lethal submission. And uh, I completely understand why Megan tapped there. So um, that was probably a smart decision to tap because, like I said, you're either getting choked out or your arm's going to be in two pieces. So smart decision by Megan to tap to that and crazy submission by uh, crazy submission by Amanda. So um, respect to that. Now, what's next for Amanda? Um, right now, it looks like she's going to go defend at 135. That's what it's looking like now. Um, 135 is... It's in a good position right now. Juliana Pena is the name that's being thrown around. She's number six in the division. She was scheduled to fight Holly Holm, and Holly Holm had to pull out of that fight. Apparently, I just learned about that yesterday, that Holm was out of that fight. But that's going to be a fight they're looking at. And at this point with Amanda, um, there isn't a clear number one contender in that 135-pound division for Amanda. So I think what we're going to see here is I think we're just going to see I think it's going to be, hey, Amanda, when do you want to fight again? And then um, Amanda's going to give the UFC a date. And then it's just going to be whoever uh, whoever is willing to step in on that date is, I think, what it's going to be. And that might be Juliana Pena. Um, I mean, Amanda's already beat Holly Holm. Like I said, Holly Holm's out with an injury. Jermaine Duran, I mean, she already beat uh, GDR. So there's that, and then you have Espen Ladd, Arena Aldana, who just lost to Holly Holm, and then um, Diana Kutsakakia. I can't say her name. I'm, my apologies. Um, so we have some, and then Juliana Pena at six. So we have some, but um, I think this is going to be a fresh name that Amanda hasn't fought yet. So I think it's just going to be whoever is more, most willing to step in on said date that Amanda chooses at this point. I think they're going to try and turn her around fast. Um, maybe they try and book her on UFC 261. They've been adding a lot of female fights to UFC 261. They've got Shevchenko versus Andrade on that card. I don't think Shevchenko has ever headlined a pay-per-view. I know Amanda Nunes has, so maybe they look to get um, Amanda on that card. And then if you can get Amanda and Valentina a win on the same date, then that'd be an easy thing to set up for their trilogy fight. Because I know right now it's looking like Valentina Shevchenko is the only person who reasonably you could make an argument for to beat Amanda. And I think that's the fight that we're going to eventually see that this year, maybe early 2022 at the latest. But I think we're going to see Nunez versus Shevchenko this year. And uh, so that makes sense if Amanda was willing to, to, to turn around that quickly um, and get her in there on UFC 261. And then that would be three title fights again, and it'd be three female title fights. 
so that would make the sport look good. And three, those would be three. Uh, one very good fight with Joanna versus um, Rosanami Yunus. And then you would have two of the greatest, probably the top two greatest female fighters of all time um, in the main and coming. So I think that would be a great opportunity for the UFC. And uh, that'd be interesting. And I hope they do that. So um, that would be, that's what I'm, that's, and what's next for Megan Anderson? You can't really tell. There's no rankings at 145. There's one other 145 match booked, and that's Felicia Spencer versus Danielle Wolf. So do you book, do you book uh, Megan against the winner? Do you book her against the loser? I mean, it's hard to say at this point. Um, you can't really tell without the rankings. And this division is in a very, very bad spot. And I think this division is going to go away once Amanda eventually retires. Um, they're just I, The UFC isn't really putting the resources into keeping this division around, um, which is unfortunate. But I think that's just the way it's going to go. This division has always had a dominant champion who um, can sell off their name value. Um, new, whether that's Nunez or Cyborg or uh, Durandamy, we had it for a little bit, but especially Cyborg and Nunez, especially with Amanda Nunez, they can market her as a double champion. There's no chance that Amanda gets down to 125, so she's got to have 135 and 145. And if she's willing to defend, I think the UFC is in a spot where they might as well keep it as long as Amanda's around. But once Amanda's gone, this division is going to be in a bad spot um i think amanda's retirement is coming i don't want to say soon but eventually you can she's mentioned retirement before you can see it in the future i'd believe um so that this this female division at 145 is in a really bad shape and the ufc might drop this division if they don't put the resources into keeping it around and at this point it doesn't look like they're going to especially with the fact that there's one 145 pound female fight booked right now you can't say that about any other division so that's just an interesting thing to keep note and think about in the future so third fight down on this card we had Aljamain Sterling versus Piotr Jan and we're going to move this back we're not going to talk about the illegal knee right off the jump let's talk about the fight going into the illegal knee um this this fight was a great fight leading up to that point. Um, this I was very excited for this fight, and this fight turned out. We had in the first round you had Elja with a high high pace, and Piotr Jan is great at breaking people. Piotr's cardio is ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. Um, he didn't look tired at all in the fourth round, and I mean Elja put on a pressure in the first first and second round where. He's coming forward, hitting leg kicks, hitting body shots. Um, it really is. It was a crazy pace, and it didn't wither Piotr at all, it looks like, and only withered down Eljo. So um, that's an interesting thing to keep note on uh, in the rematch. We're going to see that rematch right away, it's looking like. Um, I shouldn't say right away, but that is going to be the next fight, Eljo versus Piotr Jan. So um, we, were, we were in a... We, we, we saw this fight, and Eljo wasn't able to get this to the ground. And Eljo didn't look his best out there. So, um, and a lot of people are talking about the sheer takedown numbers. It was like 1 for 15 or something. But you have to remember here, a lot of those takedowns came in the third and fourth round when Eljo was clearly gassed. Those were kind of half. I mean, they weren't really full send takedown attempts. They were kind of... Um, they were kind of looking like desperation takedowns. Desperation takedowns have never worked in the UFC and never will work in the UFC. So I don't think this is a thing of um, Eljo's grappling isn't where we thought it was. I think this is a thing where he didn't try to utilize his grappling mostly until he got tired. The one, and the one takedown he did get, he got him on the ground and immediately went for ground and pound. I mean, with little, he didn't... Um, he didn't try to control position at all. That's something I think that um, he will fix in the rematch. Try to control position if he can get that takedown. Rather than just go immediate. He went immediately crazy with ground and pound. Um, once again, I hate to hate on the strategy here. But um, LJ was doing some things that I didn't like. He threw away. He threw so many spinning attacks. 
and I like spitting attacks. I I think they're um a great thing that are are under underutilized a lot in MMA. But he was throwing spinning attacks, and he was tired, so they were slow, and he wasn't hitting them. And then Piotr Jan would get his back, and then take the fight to the ground, and then. Piotr would get up and they did get have a little scramble and then you're in this position where you're on the ground and Piotr's standing over you waiting for you to get up so he can kick you in the head um so I think there are the thing the thing I did like about this fight is that in the rematch there's clear things that Eljo will see from this tape and clear things that he can improve upon so I think it might be crazy to say but I think Eljo could be able to, to win this rematch um, I don't want to put a pick out just yet. I think that'd be a little silly. But if he can go and work on some of these things that he did wrong, and um, I think now he was trying to, I think in the, this fight he was trying to break Piotr Jan with pace. And I think now he knows I can't do that. So I, so I, that's not the strategy that I'm going to implore in, in the rematch. So he saw what didn't work. And most people, when they see, when they see a strategy that clearly didn't work, they don't get the opportunity for that rematch because they lost. If if that fight that fight was looking like it was going to end, it looked like Piotr was going to eventually finish that fight. If it didn't, it was going to go to a decision, and it was going to be um, maybe Eljo one round. Um, one judge gave him two of the first three, so um, that was a little whatever. But he definitely won one round, so that would have been like a forty nine. 40, it would have been a 49-46 on, on two of the scorecards. And we would be in a position where Eljo would have to earn his way back to a title shot. But he's in an interesting position where he's going to get that immediate rematch. And um, he's going to get the immediate rematch. And uh, he, can, he gets an opportunity to fix the mistakes he made in this fight. So if he can fix those mistakes, get it to the ground earlier... And um, if he can get it to the ground earlier, I think he'll have a much better chance. And hopefully he doesn't um, wear himself down because he came in with a high, high pace. So Aljo has seen what he needs to fix for this next fight. And for Piotr, he knows now that, hey, all I have to do is wait for this guy to get tired. Give him round one, let him work, and then the whole time just Piotr, you know, pure fundamental. He has great fundamental boxing. Hands up. Um, throwing straights right down the pipe, connecting on the end of the nose, um, throwing throwing some good leg kicks in there. Piotr looked great. Um, I know I just talked a lot about how Eljo didn't employ the best strategy, and I don't think that was the best Eljo, but I think Jan was winning that fight handily, and he looked very impressive for several reasons. Um, looked great defensively. Eljo didn't look like he ever did anything that hurt Piotr too bad. Um, Jan got a drop in that first round. And got out of it. He won the first round um, with a much smaller work rate. Um, didn't wear himself down as much. So I think, and the cardio is ridiculous on Piotr Jan. He didn't look tired at all. So Piotr looked really good. And this is, I think this fight is going to be fun in the rematch. I don't, I think people are going to overlook this a little because of how one sided this first fight was. But, um, this rematch is going to be good. That's something I'm willing to guarantee. And um, now now I wanted to get that out of the way because I didn't want... There were a lot of things that happened in that fight that are being overshined by the illegal knee. And I understand that's a big talking point, but don't forget about all the things that happened the, the, four and a, the three and a half rounds or so that took place before that point. So we saw this illegal knee from Piotr Jan, and this was ridiculous. Um... There was a huge miscommunication with the corner, but it shouldn't have to come from the corner in that position if you're Piotr Jan. You should know you can't knee him in the head from that position. Um, and that knee, not only did he knee him in the head, it's not like he just hit him with a, you know, he didn't slip and bump him. He wound up and smacked him with that knee. That knee had vicious intentions, and uh, understandably so, because he thought he was throwing a knee, you know, from a legal position. It wasn't legal. But he threw, that's one of the more blatant, blatant, um, illegal strikes I've seen in a long time. And that's, and you can't really expect Aljo to continue from that. He got, he got hit, he's fatigued already. And then you, he gets hit upside the head with that knee. And then if he, if he continue, he does he wasn't in a position to continue. Some people are saying Aljo faked it. Um, that's a little ridiculous. 
I mean, he took a knee from Piotr Jan to the temple. I mean, I don't know how you could say that he should, like, if anyone if anyone gets hit with a knee like that in a fight, um, they're done. You see them get finished. You know, that's that, that knee is strong and powerful, and it's powerful enough to finish a fight. So there isn't really much that you can say there for that. Um, I just Kyoder has to know that that's a that's an illegal strike and not to throw it. Um, one of the guys in his corner told him to throw it. Um, he so he threw it, and you have to if you're in the corner, what are you doing? Because you're the coach. The coach, an athlete can get an athlete can be caught up in the moment and just you know Piotr's looking for blood in there, so he he's wanting to finish that fight. And if you're in the corner, you you have to you have to be you have to be more aware. You have to know what's going on at all times. And one of the cornermen knew. One of the cornermen did knew. No, um, excuse me. One of the cornermen cornermen knew exactly what was going on and told him to punch only. The other cornerman told him to throw the knee, and he heard the cornerman that said to throw a knee, and and that uh, eventually ended the fight. So. Um, and also, this brings up a whole nother discussion. There's two big discussions here. First of all, if a fighter gets hit by an illegal strike, can we let the doctor make the call? Because um, if a doctor can come in and say, no, he can't continue, don't put the stress on the athlete who just got hit with an illegal knee on whether he can continue. Because um, then you're going to see fighters who say, oh, yeah, I can continue, and then they get hit upside the head um, more than they needed to and take extra damage. So let's put that call in the situation of the doctor, and we should reevaluate here um, the changing of the belts because this is such a bad position. Where um, how do you, you? There's no correct answer here of what do you do with the belt in this situation. If you're Eljamain, Eljamain doesn't want to win the belt that way. Piotr was dominant. Piotr was dominating in that fight, and it looked like he was going to win that fight and walk away with the belt. So now you're in a situation where. Piotr Jan is not the champion, but I think a large portion of people would agree that he deserves to have the belt. And you have Aljamain Sterling, who is the champion, and everyone's calling him a paper champ. And El- and that's just this thing where it, it puts you in a bad position, and um, I wish there was a, a better way, because when you have... The, luckily, this is the first time this has happened in MMA history, or in UFC history. Um, the only other thing that happened similar was when Randy Couture got his eye cut against Vitor Belfort, and Belfort won the championship, and they had to rematch. That's a uh, similar thing there. But you're in this bad position where you know, there's no no one, not everyone, you can't make, um, really no one's going to be happy here. So um, I think win or lose, you have to run them back after that type of uh, illegal knee. So And that's what they're going to do. So let's just be thankful here that we're going to get this rematch, and Eljo is in good shape it seems and since he's in good shape they should be able to do this relatively soon it's not like Eljo went stiff like he did against Marlon Moraes and has to take time off um he's gonna obviously take some time off he cut weight and did all that and and got um likely got concussed so um so he went through those things so you're gonna have to take time off it's not gonna be a one-month turnaround it's not gonna be a two-month turnaround but um this year we'll see that fight and the real loser in this is Corey Sandhagen, as he was going to fight for the belt next, it, seem, it seemed. Um, but this opens up a big opportunity for Sandhagen to take on TJ Dillashaw. Um, this is a fun fight that I wanted to see back after um, Sandhagen beat Marais. And if uh, this would be, this is not the most ideal way to see Sandhagen versus Dillashaw, but I think if we're going to see that fight, um, Let's just be happy we're seeing that fight because it's going to be a fun one between those two guys. Um, So I'm happy about that. But one thing I'm not happy about is, once again, we saw TJ Dillashaw decided um, that he put out a tweet. And if you didn't see TJ Dillashaw's tweet, he called Aljamain Sterling an actor. Um, Okay, whatever. And then he called Piotr Jan a cheater for throwing an illegal name. Now, TJ Dillashaw... When you do EPO, that removes you from calling anyone else a cheater. I mean, throwing an illegal knee in in um, throwing an illegal knee in a fight is one thing, and then taking EPO to improve your cardio and help you make weight is one thing, right? Give me the guy who throws the illegal knee 
over a miscommunication than the guy who put the needle in his butt so that he could take EPO. That's just my personal preference. Now, everyone has their own personal preference, but like I said, give me the guy who hasn't, is, give me the guy who was not just coming off a two year suspension. So, TJ Dillashaw, you don't get to call anyone a cheater. And um, that's exactly what Cody Garbrandt said. Cody Garbrandt came in on that and said that um, that's pretty much TJ just said the same thing that I said. Um, that's probably where I got that from because I agreed with Cody. So, um, TJ's got to shut it down. Shut it down, TJ. All right. And um, let's we're going to jump around a little bit here. Um, I want to talk about Dominic Cruz next. Um, and I want to talk about Dominic Cruz next because we're in that 135-pound division. And we just spoke about Cody Garbrandt. So we're going to talk about Dominic Cruz next. Dominic Cruz went out there and had a very good showing against Casey Kenny. And Casey Kenny is no man's fool. Casey Kenny is a very good prospect. And he's a very talented guy. And I think his stock rose after this fight against Dominic Cruz as Dominic Cruz looked everything like Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz had the movement. He had the footwork. He had the hand speed. He had the fight IQ. He had all these things. He didn't look like he was... Um, he, it doesn't look like age has got to Dominic Cruz yet. And um, Dominic Cruz has a lot of octagon time. And um, Casey Kenny did some good things. He, he landed some nice leg kicks, landed some good punches in there. But Dominic Cruz looked like Dominic Cruz. And when Dominic Cruz is looking like Dominic Cruz, it's going to be a tough night for anyone out there. He did a nice job mixing in his wrestling and with his striking. Um, that's something that Dom does very well. Even if Dom doesn't, he doesn't always have to, he goes for those takedowns. And if he doesn't get the takedowns, that's okay. Because he uses those takedowns. He feints takedowns to get to strikes. Dominic did so well in this fight. And I think this... Um, opens up a lot of opportunity for Dominic Cruz here. In this bantamweight division, you could pretty much just um, matchmake the bantamweight division with a blindfold on and get some fun fights. So Dominic Cruz wins at 11, and you have a Pedro Munoz running around. You have Frankie Edgar running around. You have Marlon Moraes running around. So we have a lot of unmatched guys. Jose Aldo, Cody Garbrandt, Rob Font. You can match up these guys in just about any which way. And you're going to have fun fights that have high meaning to them. In my opinion, um, I think we're, I'd like to see Corey versus Dillashaw at the top. We're going to see Piotr versus Eljamain. And then I would like to see Cody Garbrandt versus Jose Aldo. And then Rob Font versus... Um, you could do Font versus Pedro Munoz. And then you can do Cruz versus Marlon or Cruz versus Frankie. Probably Marlon, as I'm assuming Frankie's going to take some time off. And then if Frankie wants to take time off, you can do Frankie and uh, maybe not Frankie and Jimmy Rivera. You've got a Sunsai running around as well. Marab is in there. Uh, Cody Stamman, Song Yadong. Marlon, Mara, or Marlon Vera, and you have Kyler Phillips, who had a very impressive performance against Song Yadong. Um, that's something I, that um, we might touch on a little bit later. But um, basically, to sum it up, Kyler Phillips looked very well. Song looked well, good too. But um, Kyler Phillips has earned himself a spot in those bantamweight rankings. And he's just another fun fighter in those bantamweight rankings to throw yourself at or to, to, to see in there, and you can throw any which way to uh, match some of these guys up, and you're going to have fun fights no matter what. And then that's because bantamweight is one of the most stacked divisions. Um, 145, 155, and 135 are some stacked divisions, and you're going to see good outcomes no matter who you match up. So there's that, and um, that's just the way I would match make the 135-pound division, and I'm very light on that. The only one of those matchups that I'm really um, really solid on is Aljo versus Ian. Everyone's solid on that matchup. And then Sandhagen versus um, Sandhagen versus Dillashaw, I'm very hard on. No, I shouldn't say it like that. Sandhagen versus Dillashaw, I'm very high on, and I, I think that's a fight we need. And then you have uh, the, one, the one where you can see some wiggle movement is Font, Cody Garbrandt, and Jose Aldo. I think Cody Garbrandt and Jose Aldo would be a fun fight, but I think you can match Rob Font up with either of those guys and get a fun fight as well. So I think those three you can match making each anyway, but I lean Aldo and Cody 
and then it leaves you Rob Font versus um, of someone like Pedro Munoz. But like I said, I could be if they if they announce today that we get Font versus Aldo or Font versus Garbrandt, I'm gonna be happy with that. Um, those three fight, those three guys, you can pair them up anyway and get a fun fight. So um, that's just my opinion on that. And like I said, I'm light on that. I'm not too. Um, I'm not too. My heels aren't dug in too deep on getting those matchups. Those can go several ways. And then we saw Islam Makhachev. Islam Makhachev looked outstanding versus Drew Dober. Drew Dober is one of the most underrated fighters in the UFC. He has a lot of talent. And Islam went out there and dominated. I mean, there isn't another way to describe that type of performance. He uh, eventually won um, with a nice choke there. And um, the thing, the thing that I saw here that impressed me with Islam is not only he has the he has the wrestling credentials that you would expect him to have, but he also has the Brazilian jiu-jitsu of that is a very high level, very high level BJJ on display here. Um, that transition into an armbar, and I believe it was the second round. It might have been the first round. It was either the first or second round. Um, was ridiculous, and he almost finished the fight in that position. So we've had Habib hyping up Islam Makhachev for at least two years. At least two years, Habib has been saying this guy's the next best guy on the planet, and that's not me. So now he's gone out there, and he's proved that he's pretty good, too. He's pretty good, too. I mean, people were believing Habib, and uh, understandably so. But when you go out there and prove it against someone like Drew Dober, it adds a whole nother level of um, a whole nother level of credibility when you see it with your own eyes. When you see a performance like that, you, you it's a lot easier to believe than if you just hear about it from. Obviously, Habib's a great source, but um, when you see it, it it's, it's a different level. So, what is next for Islam? They've been sent, they, there's a lot of options here. You can match Islam up. It's, it all depends on how fast you want to take this. There's some thoughts where you could, you know, um, he hasn't beat a ranked opponent yet, so you could work him slowly up through those rankings, or you can, he looked he looked impressive enough where you can get him on a fast track here. So the fight that Islam wants is Tony Ferguson versus Islam. In versus Islam. That is a interesting fight, and that would be a very fun fight. Um, but I, I, I don't know. It's it tough to say there. It's really tough to say. You have Tony Ferguson, who is one of the most respected guys in the UFC. He's on a two-fight losing streak, and Islam wants that fight because that's the fight that Tony, and uh, in between Tony and Habib, that fight never happened. So getting Islam would be the closest thing that you could get to it. But I think... I think making that fight, I think Islam would win that fight after what we saw Charles do to Tony. And the problem is I don't want people to, this is coming from a personal thing because I love Tony. I don't want Islam to win that fight and then people will be like, oh, he, you know, Tony never had a chance to beat Habib. I do think Habib would have beat Tony in his prime, but I think it would have been a lot more competitive than many people think just because, um, just because Tony went out there and lost um, to Gaethje and lost to Oliveira. He's clearly way past his prime um, in those fights. So I don't think I don't think that Islam beating Tony is something that um, is the equivalent to what many people would make it. I think many people would make it a bigger deal than it is. Um, I think Tony's on the decline here, and I hope Tony proves me wrong because I love Tony. But um, I think that might be a little fast having Islam move up to five right away. I think you could look look at seven, Rafael dos Anjos, um, Kevin Lee at eleven. I you know you know there's you can really book this any way you want. Ally Quinta, who knows what Ally Quinta is doing? Um, Diego Ferreira would be a fun fight as well. So I think there's many ways you can go with Islam, and you're not really gonna go wrong as long as you give him a ranked guy. As long as you give Islam a ranked guy ahead of him. You're not going wrong here, and I think it's it's just um match someone up with the timeline. It's, it's, I don't think the name is as important here as the time. When does Islam want to return, and when can we get someone in there against um when who can we get in there on that said date? 
I think Rafael Dos Anjos would be a great opponent. Um, Daryush as well, but I don't think we're going to see Benil Daryush versus Islam because Ali is a is both those guys' managers, and he I don't think he would let that happen, right? especially now, maybe eventually down the road, but I don't think that would happen right away. So there's a lot of ways you can take this. Uh, Kevin Lee, RDA. Um, I don't think we'll see Dan Hooker or Paul Felder versus Islam. Um, that just doesn't look like the right path right now for Hooker or Felder. Fajeda is a possibility. So I think that's the path for Islam, and I think he is as good as people have been has been uh, hyping him up to be. So that's going to be interesting in the future here. And then you have Alexander Rochik. had a good performance against Thiago Santos. And this was... Um, this was, uh, I liked this performance and I didn't like this performance because Santos didn't look as fast and powerful and explosive since since his knee surgeries. He was able to drop Glover, but Rochick kind of, you know, really managed this fight. Um, he really, he really um, had control of this fight in respect to Rochick and I, I hope Santos isn't done with because he's getting older and his knees are not great. He obviously, like we talked about earlier, he had a he one of his knees got turned into jello. And I just hope that uh, Thiago is is able to turn this around. But I think Rodrik is in a very good position to make a run in this light heavyweight division. I think we're gonna see Rodrik versus the winner of Prohaska and um, Yuri Yuri Prohaska and Dominic Reyes. That would be the fight that makes most sense while we wait for um, Glover versus Jan because that fight is going to happen. Um, I just realized that I forgot to talk about who who is he and who Jan Blachowicz should talk about or who, who they should fight next. So uh, we will touch on that after this. So, But for Rodrik, I think that... I think that that fight makes the most sense, and I think that's um, a wide agreement, and I don't. That's not an unpopular opinion there, so we'll just leave it at that. For Santos, what does Tiago do? Um, I'd like to see Tiago can do. You can put Tiago in there with the loser of Reyes and Prohaska, maybe. Um, Anthony Smith just got injured, um, or you can go Santos versus Magomed Ankalev. I think that would be a fun fight. That would be a really fun fight. So I think that's a possibility that we could see. I think we're just going to, yeah, I think that that'd be a fun fight. Santos versus Ankalev, or we could see Santos versus the loser of Reyes and Prohashka. So light heavyweight's starting to look better. Light heavyweight has been talked about as one of the weaker divisions in the UFC. But light heavyweight is improving greatly. Um, looking at guys like Santos is still there, but he looks like he's on the decline. Teixeira's looking like he's getting up there and close to retirement. But you have Dominic Reyes, who I think is going to be around for a long time. You have Alexander Rochik, who looked great. Yuri Prohaska had a great knockout of Vulcan Ozdemir, and he is a very good prospect here. Anthony Smith, I think, is going to be around for a long time in this division. Then you have guys like Megamed Ankalev, great prospect. Johnny Walker, if he can get, if he can start getting things um, together again, you have Johnny Walker in there as well. And then Jimmy Crute and Jamal Hill are two great prospects that I love, and I think they are going to be so good in the future. So this light heavyweight division is starting to shape out again, and I'm loving it. Um, I, I still think it's one of the weaker male divisions, but I think um, I see a lot of potential here, and I think most people would agree on that, especially on those guys um, like Magomed Ankalev, like Jamal Hill, like Jimmy Crute, um, other guys, obviously. So, but um, I'm glad to see that, and I'm glad to see the light heavyweight division turn out. So, now that I forgot to talk about what is next for Jan. Jan Blahovich, I think it's pretty clear, um, he's going to fight Glover Teixeira. He said that, and Dana agreed at the press conference, so pretty uh, pretty simple there. Now, who does Izzy fight? That's, that's a much bigger question. You have... Izzy, who has beat Robert Whitaker, beat Paulo Costa, and beat Marvin Vittori in the top five. And he hasn't fought Cannoneer or Till, but Cannoneer and Till have both lost to Whitaker. So I think this is the path we're going to see. Uh, you have Whitaker and Costa. The winner of that has a very good shot to get the title. Um, if Whitaker wins, I think it's a wrap. No doubt he gets the title shot. If Whitaker wins that, no matter what happens between Till and Vittori, it goes to Whitaker. 
Because if you're Whitaker and you've beat Costa Cannoneer Till, that's that's you know, that's a tough bargain for anyone to doubt that he doesn't deserve the title shot. I think most people think he deserves it without beating Paulo, but if he beats Paulo, it's just another nail in the nail in the coffin there. And then you have Till versus Vittori. I think I don't think Marvin gets a title shot if he wins. Um, I just think he needs one more. And I think if Till wins, I think he would need one more, but I think Izzy wants that fight, and I think that fight could get fast-tracked because um, you have two hilarious guys. I think the UFC would want to sell that. Two elite strikers, two hilarious guys that could make for fun press conferences, and that's the fight Izzy wants, it sounds like. So if Till can beat Vittori and Whitaker can uh if Whitaker beats Costa, it's a wrap. But if Costa beats Whitaker, then we have a discussion. And if Till beats Vittori, then it'd be a real close discussion here. But it looks like Whitaker's the favorite, and with the win, he would get that title shot. And then you have Costa, who would uh, is running around. And if Till, ugh, like I said, they're going to try and fast-track that, but it's hard to do that. But he's got to beat Vittori. If Till can beat Vittori, the UFC might pull some strings and get him in that title shot. But right now, it's looking like Izzy's next fight is going to be uh, the rematch against Robert Whitaker. All right. The last thing that I want to talk about from UFC 259 is the prospects we saw on the play- display. We already talked about Kyler Phillips. Outside of Kyler Phillips, you had Sean Brady, who Sean Brady looked, his ground game looked great. Um, he fought a very tough guy in Jake Matthews, and Sean Brady went out there and dominated on the ground. Very impressive performance by Sean Brady. And I think he's got um, a long future in the UFC. Then you had Amanda Lemos. Amanda Lemos. Um, she was the fourth female fighter to ever have two knockdowns in one fight. So she has a power at 115. And she threw some nice shots in there. We'll just say that. She was landing very solid shots. Um, leg kicks were strong. Powerful. I think she's got the potential to be a big force here in this division because she has some of the more powerful striking I've seen in a long time at 115. We'll see how that ground game plays out. Um, there's some great grapplers in that female 115-pound division. So, But right now, she's looking like she's got the fundamental striking to carry her a long way in the sport. So I was, I was excited to see that. I always love seeing fresh prospects. And Euros Medic also looked outstanding um went out there got the win and Mark Smith had a terrible stoppage and uh eventually after the fight they showed a stat and the fight was 48 to 0 on significant strikes so Medic went out there and dominated um should have got the win in a much quicker fashion nothing that Medic did wrong but Mark Smith went on and let that beating take place but um I just wanted to shine those guys' wheels and uh so we had Kyler Phillips, Sean Brady, Amanda Lemos, and Euromedic. All looked great. All great prospects there. All right. The last thing I want to touch on is we saw JDS versus and JDS and Alistair Overeem both got cut from the UFC, which is a shame. Um, JDS and Overeem are both legends, and it's sad to see them go out this way. Um, both coming off losses to great fighters in Surreal Gan and and um Alexander Volkov, I, that name almost slipped me. I don't know why. Um, Sirogan and Volkov both took out JDS and Overeem. I don't like seeing this. I wish the UFC would just give each of these guys one more fight and give them a retirement fight. You know what I mean? Similar to what they did with Anderson Silva. Um, you know, it's it sucks seeing guys go out and not getting the recognition they deserve. You know, they they didn't really the UFC really didn't say anything. They just kind of yanked them from the rankings. So that, that kind of sucks to see. But for JDS and for Overeem, you know, they were in a position where I don't think they were going to contend for a title. And I don't think that's um, an argument you can make. But uh, like I said, I would have liked to see one more from each of those guys against, you know, anyone. It doesn't really matter who. Hell, throw them against each other and have them both retire for all I care. But, you know, um, that sucks to see. But um, I think that is... Uh, I think that's something we've seen lately, and we're getting used to seeing legends uh, get cut and uh, retire. So, unfortunately, but um, I think that is the path we are seeing here in the UFC. So, that's the last thing I wanted to touch on. I'm not going to talk about uh, Leon Edwards versus Bilal Muhammad. Um, 
that that um, we're running long here and I don't want to uh, make this episode any longer than it needs to be. But um, on a short note, I think that's going to be a very good card. Edwards versus Muhammad has title implications that we will talk about next week. We're obviously going to break down that card. And um, there's other important fights. But now Cape is on that card as well. Um, there's some other guys. So that is going to be a card where you won't want to miss that card. Um, I'll be talking about that card here next week. And we'll talk about any other news that happened in the UFC. And uh, I believe the week after that, we have Kevin Holland versus Derek Brunson. So we'll talk about that card on next week as well. So thank you for watching the Head Kick KO podcast. And don't forget to tune in next week for the 21st episode. Thank you.